Hey guys, welcome to the podcast. Today I have on Dr. Sean Baker, which some of you will know very well. Uh, he's a big advocate for this carnivore diet that is very popular right now. It's an all-meat diet, and he is well-known online for it. He was actually on Joe Rogan a couple years ago, uh, and he's in the process of funding a clinical trial for the diet as well. So I, I really wanted to pick his brain because he has helped many people transition to this carnivore diet, and so he's really seen how people do on the diet in the short and in the long term, which I think is uh, really valuable knowledge. He's actually been on the diet himself for, I don't know, something like four years, which is pretty impressive. See, the thing is, one of the things I've really come to value in my health journey is people who have a lot of experience. You know, scientists, they will always poo-poo anecdotal evidence. They'll say, oh, if it's not a double-blind placebo-controlled study, uh, they don't want to hear about it. But give me a doctor or a nurse, you know, who's treated 15,000 patients for 20 years, and I will always go with their observations over any published paper. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, for anybody new to the show, Quacks is a health podcast about trial and error, uh, empirical evidence, and finding solutions to health problems that mainstream sources would probably call quackery. <laughs> So today we are going to talk about what the carnivore diet is, who it's for, who it's not for, and everything in between. So enjoy. Dr. Sean Baker, welcome to the show, man. Thanks for coming on. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So I'm super excited about this interview because uh, the whole carnivore diet scene, I mean, it's really exploded in you know the last year, and we really haven't had anybody on to talk about this keto carnivore stuff, so I'm, I'm really excited that you're here uh, to share that stuff with us. Yeah, my pleasure. I mean, I, I love talking about this stuff. I spend pretty much all day, every day talking about it, so it's kind of you know, the thing I do. Yeah, I bet. So why don't you? Uh, why don't we start off with you telling the audience about yourself and kind of how you got into the carnivore diet? Yeah. So my background, you know, I, I'm a, a trained orthopedic surgeon. I spent you know a couple dec decades practicing you know kind of traditional medicine, doing you know enjoying myself as a surgeon, and and also I've been a lifelong athlete. I've competed at high levels. I've set world records in in, in various different sports. You know, particularly in, in the masters level stuff and. You know, as I got into my mid 40s, I started to see my health declining despite just, you know, training extremely intensely. I mean, I've never I've never really stopped that. I've been doing that for, you know, now 40 years of that. And, uh, you know, I was developing metabolic syndrome, sleep apnea, you know, I had hypertension. You know, I was I weighed more than I should have, even though I was competing in sports that required me to be big. But honestly, I was, you know, I was sitting at, you know, 285, 290 pounds at six foot five, you know, I just won a world championship in Highland Games. And I, and I realized that I had to change up my diet. Uh, I could no longer just eat whatever I want and, and train real hard. And so as I did that, I went through, you know, about, oh, I don't know, four or five different dietary schemes to try to see what worked best for me. And I was able to lose weight very easily uh, just by going on a low fat, high fiber, you know, lean meat diet, which is what many people would recommend and I would recommend them as myself as a physician. But as I got there, you know, I lost 50 pounds in three months. I was literally just an unpleasant, unhappy, hungry, uh, you know, kind of mean person person. I remember the nurses saying they much preferred kind of the, the more, more, uh, rotund Dr. Baker than, than who I was. <laughs> yeah. I was always hungry, you know, obsessed with food constantly, you know, thinking about that, and then I, I just knew I couldn't couldn't maintain that type of diet for any any long period of time, and so I went through just on a journey, and it eventually led me, you know, to onto a ketogenic diet, and then from there, I made the sort of the transition into a carnivore-based diet, and that's been oh almost four years now, and uh, it, that's got a kind of a common scenario when people have done this. They kind of get on a ketogenic diet, feel pretty good, move over to a carnivore diet, and then just really notice, you know, like another level up where their health improves farther, they feel better. And I've been there and obviously been advocating for it. I've now, you know, been in part an inspiration for tens of thousands of people that have done this. Uh, and we see just tremendous and dramatic improvements in all aspects of people's lives and health. And so the good news is, uh, you know, we are now starting at the phase where we're getting some clinical research done on this and it continues to, to continues to grow uh, in, a, in, a, in an ever rapidly, uh, 
accelerating rates, and I'm excited to be part of that. Wow. So you've been doing this now for four years, and basically you said you were on, I, I kind of missed it, but you were on a low-fat diet, like a, a high-carb diet, and you were, you were really grumpy, or what, what was that diet you were on? Yeah, so I, my initial attempt to lose weight was, you know, exercise a whole bunch and, you know, eat a low-fat, high, like, you know, fiber, you know, salads and lean meat, you know, which is what we're often told to do. I mean, it, most people consider that a very healthy diet, you know, it was like mm. chicken breast and fish and giant spinach salads and that was what I utilized to lose weight. Uh, but I was just, I, it just wasn't, clearly wasn't sustainable for me. I was clearly not happy on that. I was clearly hungry constantly. Uh, and so I knew that was not something that I could, I could maintain on. Wow. So most people probably know what the carnivore diet is, but those who don't, what is it? So a carnivore diet is a diet that is primarily focused on animal products. And so primarily meat. I mean, there are some people that will include eggs and a little bit of dairy. And when I mean meat, I'm talking about, you know, beef and lamb and fish and pork and chicken and, you know, any, any animal basically. Uh, it is, you know, that is emphasized, that is prioritized for some people. That's all they eat is exclusively meat for other people. It's really a, uh, intentional limitation of plant derived foods. And the purpose of that is to either, well, you either limit them significantly or you completely eliminate them with the purpose being to improve your health. There's no ideology attached to it. It's purely a health derived diet. Um, some people are able to include a small amount of plant plants and they do just fine. And that's still, in my view, completely acceptable. I think the focus is getting your nutrition from the best, most bioavailable, uh, nutrient dense source. And that's clearly, uh, in my view, unquestionably animal products. Okay. And so are there any, I don't know, macros that people have to hit, you know, a certain ratio of protein to fat or, or anything like that? You know, it's not tightly controlled. We're not counting macros. It's fairly intuitive eating. We tell people just, you know, get some meat that you like, you enjoy, eat it to satiety, and then when you're hungry again, eat again. Having said that, most people tend to steer towards a little bit higher fat macronutrient ratios. I would say anywhere between 50 to maybe 90% of the calories coming from fat. So, so definitely mm. from a caloric standpoint, fat predominates, even, you know, even you know, even if you get like, you know, 70, 30 ground beef, that is majority of that. Those calories are coming from fat, uh, just the way the macronutrients work because meat is, you know, 70% water, uh, by weight. And so when you remove all the water out there, you're left with a lot more fat. So a meat-based diet is almost by definition, unless you're eating just skinless, boneless chicken and shrimp and really lean fish, it's almost always going to be a, a, a fat-based diet or a majority fat-based diet. What about, uh, I don't know, does it have to be grass-fed? I mean, what about the quality of, of what you're eating? Is that a big focus? Uh, it is for some people. That is a, that is a controversial topic, um, I, and I think it's nuanced. Um, certainly when we talk about the environmental impacts, uh, I think the way the animals are raised uh, can make a big difference, and in more than just grass-fed, it's the way they're pastured. I think you have to pasture them in a regenerative fashion so that you – promote soil health, you promote biodiversity. So that's can, that's even different than grass finish. Um, from a human health standpoint, while there is clearly, clearly differences in the, uh, you know, the quantity of nutrients uh, and the ratios of nutrients between grass finished and grain finished, and it's more than just that. It's, you know, what type of cow it is, what age, age of the cow, what all specifically it was raised on. Is it a cow? Is it a pig? Is it, you know, is it sheep? You know, is it chicken? All those things make an, make an impact. But what we don't have is clear human data showing that feeding, you know, this human, this type of meat versus that meat makes a significant difference. That data is still lacking. And so I tell them at this point, hey, we don't know yet. So uh, if you want to be if you feel like you want to you want to support the environment and certainly buy hopefully regeneratively raised meat, if all you can afford is cheap ground beef from Walmart that's fine too. It, you know, I can tell you having, you know, seen tens of thousands of people, probably there's minimal difference in the amount of people that get better, get off medications, eating supermarket meat versus the high end expensive grass finished beef. Having said that again, I am a huge, huge proponent of, you know, improving our agricultural system, improving our regenerative meat. But when it comes to a strictly human health standpoint, 
I'm not going to make claims that don't have any scientific basis yet. Okay. That is interesting. You know, what meat you choose. Do you see most people doing this or are doing the beef route or are there some people going all seafood or all chicken? Uh, almost with rare exception, people tend to steer towards ruminant meat, which, you know, are animals with, you know, quote unquote, four stomachs. Uh, and the majority of those people are eating beef, or at least beef makes up a, you know, generally the majority of the diet. Okay. Chicken and other things, fish, don't seem to, to, to tick the, the uh, satiety boxes as well, and probably some of the nutrient boxes as well. So I've not seen people successful on an all-fish diet or an all-chicken diet, or at least I've not seen that in any significant uh, number of people doing that. Okay. So why do you think people would want to do this over, I don't know, say paleo or, or keto or one of the other variations on kind of the high-fat, low-carb diet? Well, I think for some people, it's, it's a lingering, unresolved health issues. I think that is what drove the majority of people that first sort of done, first sort of did this. Uh, and, you know, I should point out that people have been advocating this diet periodically for centuries. I mean, I'm not the first guy and I won't be the last guy. Uh, when you look through the literature, there's been you know, Dr. Salisbury in the 19, in the 1800s was, you know, advocating meat-based diets. And, you know, there's Scottish surgeons in the 1700s advocating this. And, mm. you know, I mean, you know, it goes about Blake Donaldson in the 1950s and 60s. I mean, it's, this is not new. However, you know, the online community that has allowed this sort of communication like we've never had before to kind of really blow this thing up. But the reason people want to choose this as opposed to pill, because I hear it all the time, well, what's wrong with eating, you know, meat plus fruits and vegetables. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, if you, if that works for you, I'm all for that. The problem is many people have already done that route. It's rare for somebody to go from standard American diet to carnivore without having previously tried vegan, vegetarian, paleo, keto. I mean, they've all done these things before healthy, balanced diet, Mediterranean diet. It's not the first diet that most people choose. However, it's often the last diet people choose because it tends to give them the most bang for their buck and the most, you know, the most effect. And so some people, uh, you know, just do it out of curiosity. There's a few people that want to be associated with a movement and, 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 you know, but I mean, that's really, I don't really have interest in that, you know, and there's people that use it for athletic performance and body composition goals. Hmm. And it tends to work pretty well for some of those people, particularly when they want to lean out. Again, my interest is on health. I'm excited because I see people with Crohn's disease and also colitis that, you know, they become symptom-free and they come off all the meds or they have rheumatoid arthritis and they become symptom-free and come off all meds or they have severe, severe depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, even PTSD, and they get dramatically better or they have, you know, uh, psoriasis or eczema or any number of conditions that this diet seems to be, uh, you know, able to improve in many people in a very powerful way. And so that's what really, you know, really excites me with this stuff. It, it is exciting. There's some amazing stories online of people just losing a ton of weight and normalizing all kinds of blood markers. Um, I mean, it's, it's really fascinating. So let's jump into the health aspect of this. If people do get on this diet, what's like, what are their experiences going to be usually when they first start it? You know, is there an adjustment period or something that they go through? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, it depends on where they're starting. A lot of people transition from a ketogenic diet, so the shift is not quite as dramatic. But, I mean, people coming from a high-carbohydrate diet will go through, and a lot of people call it the keto flu or an adaptation period where, uh, you know, you, you depend on glucose a little less than you normally would, and you depend on, you know, fatty acids and ketones in a greater capacity. So that, that, that often causes, you know, well, there's also a, a sort of reduction in insulin levels, uh, that causes a relative loss of sodium and water. So people will notice some dehydration and with that can come uh, maybe headaches, maybe just low energy. Some people will notice their heart beating faster, uh, even potentially lower blood pressure. Um, we see that, you know, people, particularly people like diabetics, their blood glucose will typically drop significantly, uh, often within days. And some, some of them have to you know, ta taper off their medications. We'll see people with high blood pressure. Often their blood pressure will come down significantly. They may have to taper off their hypertensive, anti-hypertensive meds. Uh, we do see an adjustment in GI habits. You know, in general, because you're not, you're no longer eating all this indigestible fiber 
because it's basically a diet without fiber, and I know that's controversial, but what happens is you just don't have as many bowel movements. You're just not as much material that you're wasting. And so people are shocked to find out that they don't have a bowel movement for the first couple of days, and sometimes that can be even longer, as long as a week or more. But generally, most people, once they adapt, they start having regular bowel movements. It might be once a day. It might be once every other day or something like that. That becomes pretty normal. Uh, most people will notice that their digestion dramatically improves because they no longer have bloating, constipation, almost no gas whatsoever, which is kind of a nice side effect, so to speak. Uh, some people will, uh, you know, some people will have uh, changes in energy, changes in sleep. I mean, there, there are definitely some transition things. Uh, that occur. And some people want to come back, come back to the GI thing. Some people definitely have the opposite effect where they have, you know, loose stools or even diarrhea. And that often has to do with uh, perhaps adjusting to more fat as they're not able to absorb as much fat and it just kind of passes right through them. And there's some other things that maybe lead to that. But uh, those are things that, you know, tend to be very transient. Uh, you know, people will often lose quite a bit of weight, particularly early on. It's often just water weight. But we see a lot of people lose pretty significant amounts of body fat. And that, that often depends upon how much satiety they get. Many, many people will find that they become profoundly satiated by switching to a, you know, a fatty based meat diet and they just don't eat as much. They're just, they're just not that hungry. And then, and then instead of wanting to eat every, you know, two or three hours, they may only eat once or twice a day because they're just like, I'm just full. I don't really want food, which is really nice because for the people that really struggle with addiction to certain food types, you know, or they have sort of different, you know, eating disorders or binge eating disorders, they don't tend to have those cravings or severe cravings after a period of time. Those go away, uh, particularly if they're eating enough. And one of the problems we run into is people often under eat and then that can show up with, you know, energy issues and performance issues and then some cravings just because they're just not eating enough. Yeah. So, I mean, some of the benefits you've mentioned about blood pressure and, and digestion, how do you think, I mean, do you have any clues on how carnivore might be doing this? Uh, sure. Yeah. I mean, maybe, so, that's I mean, a, maybe that's a huge question, but uh, I don't know. Just what, what do you think, how, how is it accomplishing all these benefits? Well, I mean, from a, you know, there's a lot of things that are going on. I mean, some of the things that we, we believe we know what's going on based on research that's actually being done on the diet uh, is we see a pretty profound uh, improvement in gut integrity. That is to say, gut permeability seems to improve significantly. People have been testing that using something called polyethylene glycol 400, where you can actually clinically test this. And they see that people that go on a carnivore diet where prior to the diet, they have you know a significant excess permeability of the gut. They go on a carnivore diet and those holes in the gut, so to speak, those, those, those disruptions between the cells, the zonulin uh, that's been disrupted, it seems to tighten back up. And so the gut becomes normal as far as permeability. When that permeability is normal, you no longer have foreign particulate matter, you know, you know, microscopic matter that gets through and then causes inflammatory cascades. It causes, uh, you know, for some people, autoimmune type of symptoms. And so when inflammatory uh, burden is lessened, we see, you know, a lot of systemic things improve, such as, uh, you know, hypertension, which is often re related to, you know, systemic inflammation. Uh, we see profound glucose stability because when you're not ingesting variable amounts of glucose and your blood sugar is not rapidly rising and falling, you see a profound stabilization of energy. And when that occurs, and, you know, we make our own glucose through gluconeogenesis, which occurs from either amino acids or the glycerol, uh, the glycerol portion of fatty acids or triglycerides rather. And so you see this profound mood stabilization when, when we have, you know, glucose stabilization. So a lot of people that are, that are complaining of anxiety or depression find that they're suddenly kind of relaxed and happy. And that becomes the default setting. Um, we see that, you know, when, when the gut permeability improves, so does uh, the brain, blood brain barrier, you know, if we have a leaky gut, we have often have a leaky blood brain barrier. In fact, all the membranes in our body become leaky and permeable. And so all of those things become infected. And then also it's just like I talked about at the beginning, better nutrition, higher quality nutrition. We have all these things that, you know, I'll talk about the brain. I mean, all these things that we, we know that have positive effects on the brain, such as carnitine, uh, carnosine, creatine, taurine, uh, you know, yeah, B vitamins, zinc, iron, all of these things the brain utilizes for function. And so when we get low on those things, and we know a lot of people are, particularly people that exclude 
animal-based products from their diet, they are lower on these products. You know, even though they can, we can manufacture things like carnitine ourselves, we still end up needing exogenous amounts to get us to the adequate levels for optimal function. So I think there's a whole cascade of things that are going on that, that, uh, uh, provide for some of the benefits we're seeing. Yeah, that's actually really interesting. There's a lot there um, for people to think about, you know, as far as the gut integrity and the brain benefits and stuff like that. So do you find that people are staying on this diet for long term or are they kind of using it to lose weight and then getting off of it? Or how does it how does that work? Uh, it's definitely a mixture. I think that there are there are, a, you know, a, a significant a percentage of people that get on it, they love it, and they, they see no reason to leave. And they've been doing it. And we've got people that have been doing it 20-plus years. Um, there are probably what I would say the majority of the people do. They do it for a period of time. They often will say, this is the best I've felt in you know 20 years. I feel like I'm 20 years younger. And then they invariably, you know, they kind of come off, and they come off a little bit. And then they circle back in, and they do it again. And I see a lot of people that are in and out. You know, they kind of just you know, make concessions. So it's Christmas. We're going to load up on junk and feel like garbage for a month. And we're going to go on a one-month bender. And then we're going to get back on the diet. And then there's also a lot of people that will just be, you know, we say car- carnivorous or the people that, you know, they're carnivore, but they'll have an avocado or a piece of dark chocolate here and there. And they tend to be hmm. – they tend to still, still kind of do kind of keto, keto-friendly keto foods, if you will, uh, and that's probably quite a few people. And, you know, and many of those people do just as well as the ones that are strict. Uh, and I think that's great as well. I mean, I think ultimately it's finding what works for you and what's sustainable over the long term. Yeah. You mentioned earlier that you were kind of doing keto before carnivore. Um, what did carnivore do for you that the other diets didn't really do for you? I mean, were you still having some of those symptoms? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, when I was on keto, I, I was impressed with the appetite suppression. I was impressed with the energy stability. Um, I was impressed with overall a decrease in inflammation. Uh, when I, I was I was 49 at the time when I when I took up the carnivore diet, I'm 53 now. Uh, but I, you know, I I, I had kind of dabbled. You know, I did. You know, I had done two days here, three days here, a week here, just kind of playing with. It. I did it for about six months, and then finally in late 2016. Um, I, you know, I did all, I went all in for a month and, you know, I had had some, you know, my digestion, I noticed just got significantly better. I didn't even know I was having digestive issues, but all of a sudden it was like, I, I didn't even notice I digested food anymore. It was like, it became a, it's like going from a, you know, a, you know, a clunky car that makes a lot of noise to, to, a, you know, a high precision, you know, the car that, you know, luxury car where you can't hear anything. It was like, digestion became imperceptible. I was like, I didn't know I was digesting food anymore. Inflammation further improved. In fact, I'd had uh, tendonitis in my right quadriceps tendon for probably close to a decade. And as an orthopedic surgeon, I had tried everything I knew in my power as someone who, you know, whose profession was to deal with, you know, musculoskeletal issues. Yeah. And I could get it better. And literally within, uh, I think eight weeks of doing this diet that went away and it has never come back in now for almost four years. Um, I saw, uh, in, you know, body composition. I, I saw, you know, and again, I had mentioned I've been training my whole life and I've been training intensely. I mean, and I still do today. I train very hard and I train very frequently and I'd had some strength goals that I've been trying to hit since I was 45. Uh, and I'll just use it as an example. I was trying to deadlift 405 pounds for 20 repetitions and I would always kind of get to 15 or 16, and I just couldn't couldn't break past that barrier. And I've been working on that for several years. And I, you know, I'd go two or three months here, and then I'd quit because I, I, you know, I got distracted, and I'd do it again. I'd still always reach the same point. I went to carnivore, and then I think the first time I even tried that workout, instead of 15, 16, I got 18 repetitions. And then the next week, I hit my 20 rep goal, and it was like I did nothing special with regard to training. The only difference was diet. Uh, I saw at this point I'd taken up competitive rowing, you know, the concept two machine. Uh, and I had already set an American record, you know, at 49. In fact, I broke all the 40 plus records at age 49, but I turned 50 and I broke, you know, several, you know, 50 plus world records and American records, but I was dramatically faster at 50 than I was at 49. I mean, something like 10% faster, which is a tremendous improvement, you know, when you're already at a world-class level to put 10% more in your performance 
which is equivalent to what I saw on the deadlift, by the way. Wow. I thought it was just remarkable. And I, and I, I can't attribute to anything else besides that because that's the only thing I really changed. My training style didn't, didn't change at all. It was just getting the more high-quality food and getting less of the, I guess, lower-quality food, if you will. That is pretty amazing uh, to have a 10% increase from between 49 and 50 yeah, I thought so too. <laughs> so one of the concerns uh, about this diet is kind of the lack of certain nutrients in meat. I know when I first read about it, I was kind of thinking to myself, like, there's no vitamin C in meat. You know, there's very little uh, vitamin A and other nutrition in meat. So how are people not getting scurvy or becoming deficient in vitamin A or, you know, different nutrients? Uh, well, I'll, well, I'll start with vitamin C. I mean, that's uh, that's probably the one that is probably the most deficient, if you will. Now, one of the things we see is we know that the USDA didn't actually test meat for vitamin C. They just assumed to be zero, so they didn't really actually test it. And so there are there have been independent labs, like other countries have tested, and we look in their database, we do see a small amount of vitamin C in beef. For instance, a pound of beef has something like 10 milligrams of vitamin C. Now, 10 milligrams is thought to be enough to prevent scurvy. So if you eat a pound of beef, you've got enough just vitamin C in beef to prevent scurvy. Now, hmm. uh, that's still, you know, you're kind of playing, you know, that, that's still kind of, you know, really cutting it close there. So most people would say, you know, you need 50, 60 milligrams a day, some people even higher. Um, but we've known since, oh, 150 years ago, you know, like the polar explorers taught us this. They knew that fresh meat would prevent and cure scurvy. So. Uh, we know that just having access to fresh foods, uh, fruits, vegetables, or meat tends to prevent scurvy. Now, when we talk about the sailors, you know, and the, you know, the British sailors, the limey, so to speak, what they were eating was not fresh meat. They were eating dried meat and hardtack. So they were on a high-carbohydrate a high diet, and they were eating preserved dried meat, which loses some of that, you know, those anti-scorbutic properties that, mm. that prevent scurvy. Now, the other thing we know is that and we know this with a lot of vitamins and minerals that the requirements change based upon the baseline diet. Like, like we like even the RDA right now recognizes if your diet contains a lot of phytic acid, which we do get from grains, beans, legumes, and stuff like that, then you need to up your zinc intake. You know because we know that phytic acid binds to zinc, and therefore if you're on a you know heavy phytic acid diet, which might be a plant-based diet, you're going to have an increased requirement to take in zinc. So we know that baseline diets affect your nutrient requirements. So with an all-meat diet, what we see is, one, we know that glucose, uh, and even dietary glucose, competes with vitamin C uptake. So if you have glucose present in the gut, and, you, and while you're trying to ingest vitamin C, uh, the glucose will competitively hit, inhibit the, the, the transporter. So if glucose is in there, it's blocking vitamin C from getting in, so then you'll tend to not absorb as much vitamin C. We know that that occurs across many membranes, across mitochondrial membranes. We have the same competitive inhibition. We know that red blood cells can actually recycle vitamin C, and so that probably capacity is upregulated in, in, a, in a situation where we're not ingesting it. We know that uh, a lot of other um, uh, compounds, you know, vitamin C, one of the functions of vitamin C is an antioxidant. So we know that other compounds in a low-carbohydrate states, things like glutathione and others, are upregulated. So our endogenous antioxidants are upregulated in a low-carbohydrate diet, thus probably rendering vitamin C less and less essential. So the amounts tend to go down. And then we also uh, know that one of the, another one of the functions, well, a couple of the functions, you know, vitamin C is essential for the utilization of carnitine uh, or, or pr production of car carnitine in the body or the shuttling carnitine in the body. And we know that carnitine is found in meat. So if you're eating a lot of meat, you're getting that macronutrient or, or that, that, that nutrient. So you don't need as much vitamin C. And then also the, the, the function of vitamin C on uh, cartilage production is through uh, uh, hydroxylation of proline and, and lysine. And again, if you're eating a diet that has collagen in, in it, and we know we have specific gut transporters for both hydroxyproline and hydroxylysine. So Again, you're obviating the need for so much vitamin C. So that's kind of the vitamin C. And there's probably other things we don't know. And how much relevance each of those has, we don't really know. We can only speculate. But the clear thing is we're not seeing any significant number of people with, with scurvy on this diet. I've not seen anyone with convincing evidence of scurvy. There's been a few people that said, yeah, my gums got sore. But, I mean, that is that is a vast minority. And there's no definitive proof that anyone's gotten actually gotten scurvy on the diet. So I've not seen it. 
I don't supplement vitamin C. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm clearly not deficient. But if you've seen my, you know, what I post every day, activity level, I'm clearly not suffering from some nutrient deficiency. So vitamin and, and the other thing is, depending upon how you do the diet, you know, you could, let's just say we wanted to hit the RDA for certain micro, you know, micronutrients or certain, certain nutrients of concern, you can that in animal-based diets if you wanted to. You could say eat enough liver and you could eat enough thymus and, and, and pancreas and, and, and get enough vitamin C and certainly with liver A, you can get plenty of vitamin A and, you know, you could do, and, you know, if you want to get enough vitamin K, you know, you could do, you know, dairy and, you know, and, and you know, and, and seafood and cheeses and so you can make, you can make an RDA diet out of a fully animal-based diet if you want to. The, the, the more exciting thing is why do those people that only eat hamburger patties, and that's all they've been eating for a decade, not develop any of these nutrient deficiencies. And I think that's where the more interesting questions come in. in. And I think really the answer is baseline diet predicts um, what we need. Like, for instance, magnesium. So many people are magnesium deficient, and we're trying to – we blame the soils, and we blame, you know, that sort of stuff. But one of the things we don't talk about is the fact that magnesium is a cofactor for a lot, a lot of carbohydrate metabolic uh, requirements. And so if you're taking in a lot of carbohydrates, your magnesium requirement goes up so much to the point that you may become relatively deficient. So if you're on a low carbohydrate diet, you probably don't need as much magnesium. And so I think the problem is we are now eating a diet as human beings that humans aren't designed to eat. And so now we're trying to play catch up with all these supplements and, you know, these, 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 you know, I mean, you think about it, where were the supplements 50,000 years ago? They didn't exist. So, I mean, you know, people say, well, they were, they were, you know, they were eating dirt or drinking swamp water. I mean, I mean, <laughs> theory, I'm just, you know, my, my thought is probably they were eating, you know, a human appropriate diet and they didn't eat all that garbage, but that's my thoughts. Yeah. I had a guy on the podcast uh, a while back who has this whole theory about vitamin A being, um, it's not a vitamin. Uh, he actually thinks it's a toxin and, and he pointed to some of the carnivore people and said, look, you know, some of these guys have been eating meat, which has very little vitamin A, unless, like you said, unless you add liver or something, but some of these guys have been eating meat for, you know, a decade and, and they're not going blind. They're not vitamin A deficient. So I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that? You know, I haven't really, uh, explored that. Uh, you know, it, you know, there, there could be some validity to that, but I, I can't say I've looked at it in any, any sort of significant degree of depth. So I, you know, maybe, maybe he's right. Who knows? I mean, uh, I don't, I mean, yeah, on paper, probably, probably I don't get the RDA of our vitamin A. I'm not worried about it. You know, I don't have any vitamin A deficiency symptoms. So, uh, that would be interesting to interesting to explore further, perhaps down the road. Yeah. So one thing you mentioned was was kind of our ancestral uh, diet, and I know a lot of paleo is inspired in part by uh, the Paleolithic age, right? Uh, and how we used to eat. So I don't know. Can you talk maybe a little bit of how this diet might fit with how our ancestors ate? Yeah, I think it depends on which ancestors you're talking about, and how far back you go. Clearly, there was a shift in. Uh, food availability is some, somewhere between 100 and 25,000 years ago. Uh, what we saw is, you know, early humans, and when I say humans, I'm talking, you know, you know, Homo habilis, and some people argue, argue even some of the later Australopithecines. Um, human beings started probably becoming efficient hunters, probably with Homo erectus. You know, Homo erectus uh, clearly demonstrated the capacity to kill large grazing ruminant animals, particularly propsidians, which would include elephants, mastodons, mammoths. That was their basically food of choice. And you think about it from a hunting efficiency standpoint, you've got a giant animal that's loaded with a million, two million, three million calories of food. Uh, They don't run away from you. They're easy to track. They're easy to find. Uh, and then once you have spear technology, they're actually easy to kill, which most people find shocking. But it's actually pretty clear in the Paleolithic record that Homo, Homo erectus, in fact, there's a, there's a paper out there to talk about mammoth hunting in the Paleolithic. And they said basically Homo erectus killed you know, mammoths whenever they felt like it. So, I mean, they probably had as much meat as they needed year round. They didn't starve. They didn't go through famine periods of time. Uh, think about it, growing a brain, a huge brain going from a 300cc brain up to, you know, a Homo erectus achieved something like an 1100, 1200cc brain, and then Neanderthal topped out at 1700ccs. But growing that huge brain required, you know, high nutrient, high calorie dense food 
and in a, in a consistent fashion. You couldn't do that when you're starving half the time. So I don't think we had feast or famine. I think we had consistent access to high quality nutrition day in and day out as we evolved, as our brain grew, as our brain grew, we became more and more efficient at hunting. And then something happened uh, and people, some people argue it was climate change or a giant comet, you know, in North America. But clearly we see, you know, a dying off of the megafaunal animals throughout the world, wherever human beings sort of, you know, made it in large quantities. We see it across Europe. We see it across Asia. We see it across, you know, uh, uh, Australia and the Pacific Islands and then even in North America. And so as the food supply changed, as we killed this off, and there's some nice papers by Mickey Bendora's written a recent one. Clearly what happens is that new environmental pressure triggered us to change, uh, you know, our technology, you know, the, you know, the bow and arrow technology is about 60,000 years old. And that's because instead of running up and stabbing an elephant with a spear, now we had to chase these very fast moving uh, uh, antelopes and things that run away. And they don't just stand there. You can't run out. You know, you can't chase an antelope. Uh, you know, with a spear. I mean, you know, there's some persistence hunting that's going on, but I mean, it's not a very efficient way to do that. And so you have to kill far more and more animals to get the same amount of calories and particularly fat. I think man would be, many people would argue that man was not only a carnivore or, or primarily carnivorous, but also a lipovore. We sought out fat. We cracked the bones, got the bone marrow, got the brains. Uh, we use that to, 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 again, talking about that highly concentrated source of energy. Animal fat clearly is superior. You know, did we eat fruits, fruits and vegetables and, and nuts and tubers along the way? Probably to some degree. But I think that was a minor part, particularly early on. Now, as we made the shift into hunting smaller animals, which are by necessity leaner animals, you have less, you know, you have less fat per protein. You know, these animals are more and more protein and less fat. And so now we're looking for uh, different ways to fill those energy sources. And so now we're relying more on tubers, more on fruits. Uh, you know, I think for vegetables were probably a later addition just because they had no, no, no real caloric value until we, you know, we started to breed them, you know, as we got to we got you know, smarter cultivating and eventually accumulating in, you know, agriculture and farming and in the processing of grains. Uh, and then we saw a dramatic decrease in our stature. We saw a decrease in our dental health. We saw a reduction in jaw size. We saw a dramatic reduction in brain size. We lost something like 200 cc's of brain material when we went from, you know, hunting to, to farming. Uh, you know, short, we were six inches shorter. Our bones were showed signs of, of, you know, mineralization problems. And so this is, you know, so I, like when I, when they talk about the Paleolithic time, are we talking about upper Paleolithic, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, Mesolithic, uh, early Neolithic, or are we talking, you know, modern hunter gatherers, which by no way, like people like to refer to the Hadza and some of these other tribes, they in no way recommend re, re, sort of represent what early humans would have would have been would have been had available to them. You know, the, you know, the, the early humans had an all-you-can-eat meat buffet of fatty meat, whereas the the later humans uh, are dealing with lean meats and uh, uh, further reliance on plant material. And so I think that's the difference. And I think you know when we go over a three million period, three million years period of evolution, even the you know the early uh, or the late hunter-gatherers, you know, we're only looking at, you know, 50,000 years. And so the majority of our evolution was probably fatty meat, fatty meat, fatty meat. Eat some berries when you came across them, you know, seasonally, uh, depending on what part of the world you're in. Mm. I imagine also, I mean, they didn't have refrigerators, so they probably ate a lot of this meat all at once so that it wouldn't go bad. Uh, which in some ways mimics almost intermittent fasting or something like that. So how does intermittent fasting tie into this? Well, I don't, I, you know, they definitely have preservation techniques. A lot of them would dry them. So they would, you know, the, the preservation techniques go back probably hundreds of thousands of years. So if they live in a cold environment, they'd stick it in the snow. There's even preservation where they stick the stuff underwater. Uh, they bury it. You know, sometimes it'll ferment, sometimes it'll dry it. So I don't think they had to gorge on a whole elephant. I mean, you know, let's say humans are living living in groups of ten to twelve, which is or twenty. That's pretty typical. Uh, that elephant's still going to last them several months, three, four, five, six months maybe. Uh, but I don't know that I don't. But what I would agree with is probably particularly when cooking came into place and as man developed uh, at some point a preference for cooking the meat. That is not an easy proposition. You know, and so, you know, you've got to build a fire, you've got to cook the meat. And so it wouldn't be like you were snacking all day long. You know, I mean, you know, maybe maybe it happened to some degree. Maybe if you're 
if, if you're traveling through the forest and you, you pick a few berries, you might do that. But I think in generally, we probably ate in discrete periods of time, probably ate to satiety, probably quite a bit of food, probably till we were completely full, like any other animal generally does, uh, particularly carnivorous or meat-heavy animals. And then we just didn't eat again until we were hungry again. And that could have been anywhere from you know, a day or two to, you know, maybe 12 hours, depending on that. So I think that, I think certainly, um, I would say it would be inconvenient at the least to, to be on a, uh, you know, you know, the, the American Diabetic Association recommended diet of, you know, three meals a day plus three snacks. I mean, I, I just don't think that was, that's not in our, in our sort of evolutionary lineage. Yeah. So I, I want to kind of ask some more questions about, uh, the diet and maybe, I don't know, maybe things that people should watch out for. Um, so is there anything that, are there any signs that you would, you know, have come up that would tell you, uh, this isn't working for you, or I don't know, you need to reincorporate other foods back in? Well, I mean, certainly, uh, what, what I do is I often get people and I kind of, kind of, you know, I, I kind of chuckle at this or, or it's a little bit frustrating. It's like, they'll tell me, you know, they went on a carnivore diet and, they didn't get relief for whatever issue, you know, it really, you know, they're, they're treating like things X, Y, and Z. And they're really sad that it didn't work for them because they really wanted to be a carnivore. And I'm like, why, why do you want to be a carnivore? Why don't you just be, want to be healthy? I mean, this is all to be healthy. It's not to identify with one particular dietary drive. It's like you want to get healthy. And, you know, definitely there's some people that do the diet and they don't get the results they need or they, they want to do. And I say, well, then why would you do it? I wouldn't do it. I mean, if I wasn't getting if I wasn't getting results, I would not stay on the diet. Um, I think, you know, to be honest in a fair assessment, I think most people need about 90 days to make that decision. I, you know, I, we often promote these 30 day challenges just because most people say, Hey, I can do it for 30 days. But in truth be told about 50% of the people still haven't adapted by 30 days. And so, but if I tell everybody to do a three month thing, it's hard to, hard to convince people to do that. Um, you know, some people just struggle with digestive issues. Uh, they struggle with meat. Uh, a lot of the people have such, you know, damaged digestive systems. You know, they may have really, really poor acid production, which is pathology. Um, you know, maybe through years of poor diet or being on proton pump inhibitors for a long period of time, and they just don't digest meat particularly well, and it just it just doesn't sit well with them, and they really struggle with that. So some of those people, you know, may have to stop from the diet, or there, you know, there's sometimes some supplementation that they'll utilize to help them through, or if they want to stick it out. Um, there's, you know, there's some people that, you know, they, they just you know, they can't deal with the lack of variety and, you know, the, the diet doesn't have to have a lack of variety. You can certainly make it very, very uh, varied if, you, if you're interested in, in, in pursuing that. But a lot of people, they just miss carbs so much. Some people are so, uh, I don't know, I don't want to use the word addicted, but for some people it is actually an addiction. But some people are so dependent upon carbohydrates that they, that they, they just can't make that shift. Um, you know, some people, it's just, too hard for them socially. Um, you know, I think, you know, there, there's a few people that, that I've seen that, that, you know, just their health has actually gotten a little bit worse when they do that. And, you know, I, I tell them, you know, either change things up, you can change things up in the context of a coronavirus diet. There's a several ways to do it, or, you know, go ahead and add other stuff back in or change your diet. But uh, I think it's gotta be, uh, you know, it's got to be an individual decision, really. I mean, I can't tell who's going to be successful, who's not, or how long they're going to be. I have so many people that will start the diet. They'll be three weeks in. They're like, I feel amazing. This is the best I've ever felt. I'm never going to quit. And I just kind of, you know, kind of raise my eye and say, well, talk to me in six months because odds are you probably will be, may, you may still be on a carnivore diet, but you might be, you know, doing a, a variation where you're including other foods. And, and again, that's totally fine. So, yeah, one of the things um, a guy I interviewed, I don't know, a few months ago, Kyle, he, he mentioned um, that one of the things people should probably do if they're on a keto or carnivore diet is test their thyroid function or maybe test their cortisol levels. What do you think of that? Is that kind of a good uh, gauge that people might want to look at while they're doing this? Uh, it wouldn't be like the, the main thing I would be looking at, but I mean, certainly when it comes to thyroid function, there are a lot of people that suffer from, you know, usually hypothyroidism or autoimmune thyroid uh, issues. Um, we will see with low carb diets in general, often a reduction in, in circulating T3, which is the active form of thyroid. And so, 
if you just go in and get your blood test drawn and it shows a low T3 and then you say, oh my gosh, my thyroid is tanking, that may not necessarily be true because there may be, uh, and Stephen Finney has wrote, written a nice article on this if anybody cares to look it up. It's, I think just look under Verta Health uh, or Stephen Finney, low carbohydrate diets and thyroid. Um, we see that there is probably an upregulation in thyroid receptor, uh, either sensitivity or density. And so when the thyroid receptor levels go up, you need less thyroid circulating. And same thing with insulin. You know, if you think about it, if I, if your insulin were to go down, most people would be pretty happy, you know, because we have a, we struggle with a lot of people with hyperinsulinemia. Uh, and what we do, we do know is we have insulin resistance and insulin sensitivity. So when our insulin goes down, we are, we often say we are more insulin sensitive. So analogously, if our thyroid goes down and, and this is the most important part, and we are asymptomatic, you know, because if, if your thyroid hormone goes down and you have thyroid symptoms and say you're tired and sluggish and you're cold and you've got hair that's falling out, you know, and you've got a low T3 and maybe a high TSH, uh, and you know, you can look at some of the other thyroid markers, you know, the antibodies and the reverse thyroid and things like that, then yes, you might have to you might have to make adjustments. Maybe you're just not eating enough. And a lot of times that occurs. You know, people undereat, as I said at the beginning here, one of the most common errors is undereating. And so uh, but often, you know, often it's just a matter of, you know, hey, uh, it may be physiologically normal to have a slightly low T3 and it's no big deal. Uh, with regard to the cortisol, you know, there's some people talk about, well, you know, it's stressful and there's elevations of cortisol. Um, that data is usually seen in the acute setting, you know, when we're looking at cortisol levels. So people change their diet. Uh, it, it can be stressful and we can see an elevation in cortisol. Uh, in the chronic setting, I personally am not seeing a lot of people with elevated cortisol levels, uh, but admittedly, it's not something we test frequently. Uh, but, you know, certainly uh, I can see where, uh, you know, definitely acutely, maybe some people in a chronic state might have that. And that's, you know, that can be due to underlying stress, which may or may not be related to the diet. There may be other things going on. Uh, so I don't totally dismiss that, but I'm saying I've not seen that as a is a real common problem. I know some people that are like, uh, I think the fans of a guy named Ray Pete, who, uh, you know, is a big fan of, you know, sugar consumption. And, you know, you know, they, they talk about that in their circles. And I'm not seeing it, it to a high degree. I see a few people talking about it occasionally that, that they say they've experienced that, but it's not been, you know, the experience that I've seen by and large for most of the population doing this. All right. One thing you mentioned was blood tests. You actually have a really interesting view on blood tests, and this is a great way to bring it up in that you think that a lot of times they're not as useful as maybe other doctors might think. Can you kind of expand on that? Well, certainly I think that, you know, serum blood tests have a role in, in for certain reasons, particularly in acute illness. Uh, when we're looking at a chronic condition for chronic disease, so to speak, uh, many of them, because these blood tests can vary widely from day to day. So like, for instance, let's, let's just use cholesterol as an example. You can get your cholesterol taken on Tuesday and let's say and it comes back 210 uh, using, uh, you know, milligrams per deciliter, uh, you know, the American units. And that decision, you know, if you've got a really bad doctor, but we still have a lot of them out there. Well, I won't say bad doctor, but an uneducated doctor. That that number may prompt him to put you on or recommend a cholesterol-lowering drug like a statin. Conversely, uh, you could come in on Thursday and that cholesterol might show up at 180, 30 points different. And the doctor may say, oh, okay, well, that's fine. Let's just watch it. So a difference of two days may dictate whether you go on a medication for the rest of your life because once you start on it it's rare that they'll they'll take you off of that medication uh so that minor change uh in in you know from one day to the next may just completely change how you manage the rest of your life uh many you know like let's look at vitamin d for instance a lot of people will make a decision on vitamin d. they'll go in in the morning they'll get their vitamin d drawn and it'll read uh you know let's say 27 and depending upon who's cut off, you're looking at some, some societies recommend 20, some, some recommend 30, some recommend 40 as, 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 as considered low or potentially deficient. So it's 27. If you were to go in and get that same lab drawn at 2 p.m., it would probably be 34. We know that vitamin D has a 30% variation throughout the day within the same day. Wow. Uh, same, same thing with testosterone, same thing with many of these things. So we're making these decisions based on 
uh, you know, things that one, one that are widely variable within the same day or day to day change. The other thing is a lot of people, you know, particularly in the community, maybe they aren't physicians, uh, will look at labs and they'll make diagnosis based on labs without any clinical context whatsoever. And so you have to have clinical context. Like for instance, let's take a, like a typical, uh, uh, you know, basic medical met, uh, metabolic panel, uh, you know, BMP. And so you'll get a lab on there. It'll show you uh, your serum creatinine, your BUN, and your your GFR, estimated GFR, glomerular filtration rate. And so you might say, I've been on a carnivore diet, and guess what? My creatinine is up a little bit. You know, it's 1.3 something, and the cutoff is 1.2 or something like that. And um, then they, what they do is they take that creatinine number, and they use that to calculate your GFR, your glomerular filtration rate. So it's it's a purely just it's not a measured value. It's an estimated value based on serum creatinine. Um, if you are eating a low protein diet or a normal protein diet and you have elevated creatinine, that works. That that may be concerning. If you're on a high protein diet, we expect your creatinine to be high. Uh, more important, moreover, um, anybody who's gotten their creatinine back or their, EF, their, their GFR back will often say African-American and it'll be 10 to 15 points higher. And the reason for that is because African-Americans are presumed to carry more muscle mass per unit of, of, of body area, right? So that automatically gives you a better looking glomerular filtration rate. That formula is also based upon a presumed body surface area of 1.73 square meters. Now, somebody like myself, who's way, way bigger than 1.73 square meters, I'm like 2.4 square meters. So that's going to dramatically underestimate my you know, kidney function. Uh, and so, you know, and I'm on a high protein diet. So, I mean, it looks like I've got potentially less kidney function. And I mean, it's still within the normal range, but it's not where it probably is if I didn't, if I took those calculations. Now there's another test you can do called cystatin C, which totally, you know, gets rid of all those factors. It's a more reliable test on a, on a carnivore diet. But so you have to, you know, you have to have, um, clinical context, you have to understand what the variation of these lab markers are. And then more importantly, there's better things to measure. You know, when I'm looking at cardiovascular risk, I mean, cholesterol is a, LDL cholesterol is a risk factor. It is not disease. It is a factor, just like age is a factor, just like smoking, uh, sex, family history, uh, measures of inflammation, uh, you know, uh, triglyceride levels, HDL levels, uh, you know, glycemic control. Uh, so on and so forth. So I would rather look at, let's look at actual disease. So if I want to know what my cardiovascular um, status is, which is probably better than maybe risk, I would look at maybe my carotid arteries. You know, I get a CIMT ultrasound or maybe a coronary artery calcium scan to look at my heart, which I've done, which is a perfect zero. Uh, you know, no evidence of disease whatsoever in my, my heart vessels. Um, so I think we have to realize the limitations of what labs can tell us. And we have to realize how much they are variable. And we more importantly need to know what the clinical context is because you can't I get people send me their labs all the time and say, what do you think? And my invariable my answer is, I don't know. I need more information. <laughs> and, and this is a thing, you know, a lot of people now, I mean, there's some that are so ridiculously out there, you know, I mean, you know, you know, some of them would be as elaborate because you'd be dead if that was your actual lab. But I mean, some of them are so, you know, f you know, far removed that I would say, I have serious concerns about this. Let's get some more information. But these day-to-day -day ones where you're shifting 10, 20, 30 points, 20% change, 30% change, and you're making lifelong decisions based on that, to me, is uh, a little bit, you know, uh, short-sighted to say the, say the best and probably negligent uh, in some cases to, 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 to be the most sort of uh, critical of that. Yeah. Did you find that your own blood work changed at all when you started doing carnivore? Um, you know, I, I didn't really have a lot of baseline comparison. I mean, like I think I had a cholesterol a cholesterol panel a previous, and it didn't change really appreciably at all. I mean, that was, you know, it just was what it was. I don't remember anything else on that. I've, you know, I've checked uh, a few things periodically. Like I said, I had my heart scan done, which I thought was the most kind of most important thing for me, uh, and that was a, that was a perfect, perfectly clear arteries. Um, you know, like I, 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 we're getting ready to adopt a baby. And so we're, I, I had to have some tests drawn. I had like my liver function test mm. done and they were all perfectly normal. I had my kidney function test done. It was all perfectly normal urinalysis. 
you know, my cholesterol was again, like it was, you know, a little bit elevated, but not to where I'm like concerned at all, you know, based on the other stuff that's going on, you know? So, um, you know, I, I, I have so many other better indices of health that I can look at that, that, you know, kind of keep me, you know, cause I have no desire to die or get cancer or any of those things. And, you know, I am very much concerned about my health. And so for the people that think I'm out here recklessly eating meat, uh, <laughs> I would beg to differ. I mean, I'm very, you know, if anything, I am incredibly health conscious. I mean, anybody that sees what I do, I mean, the, the uh, physical condition that I keep myself in, the exercise I do, the, the, the you know, I'm, I'm very meticulous about what I do and what I eat and, uh, you know, and, and my behaviors to support health. So, uh, you know, I, I, you know, I am very much, you know, a, a fan of, you know, being healthy. And I, and I that above almost anything else. Well, congratulations on adopting a baby. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're in process, so we, we don't have a little, little one yet, but, uh, I, I'm, you know, I, I, I suspect I'll be, I guess, 54 years of age with a, with a brand new infant. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is quite the process I've heard, uh, you know, but, but anyway, I'm st- I stay young, you know, stay young at heart, hopefully in mind and body as well. And that'll hopefully stead me through. So one thing I wonder about is how the diet affects the microbiome. Have, I mean, this is the microbiome is such a big area of study, and it's kind of the frontier right now. But have you read anything or seen anything how this, you know, how the microbiome shift might be contributing uh, to the results? Uh, well, certainly, obviously, there's a lot of tension on the microbiome, and I think the the best I can say about the microbiome in general and the research is we have no frigging clue yet. We are so so much in our infancy and the complexity of the microbiome is orders of magnitude more difficult than anything else we study in relation to the human body, except perhaps maybe the human brain. Um, you know, when we look, let's just look at cholesterol, for example. You know, we've been studying cholesterol since the 1920s. We are still fighting about its relevance, its significance, its subfractions and subparticles and what they mean as far as just cardiovascular risk. So we've got 100 years to study this, and we still don't have it solved. The microbiome, again, orders of magnitude, maybe 100,000 times more complex to think, to have the arrogance to think that we have any clue what the microbiome means with regard to health outcomes. I mean, I would posit that if you are healthy, if you are free of disease, then you have, by definition, a healthy microbiome regardless of its makeup. Now, having said that, with regard to the people on the carnivore diet that I have seen, uh, there are studies showing this. When we look at carnivorous populations like Inuit uh, that have had their microbiomes tested on their native diet, they show tremendous diversity. Diversity is thought to be one of the positive things in the microbiome. Again, I'll put the caveat, but I don't know that we generally absolutely know that, but the things we think are beneficial about the microbiome uh, the, 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 the population study have shown generally good things. I've seen, uh, people with multiple microbiome studies have gone from a non-carnivorous diet to a carnivorous diet. I can think of, uh, you know, people with ulcerative colitis, for instance, where they have many, many microbiome studies. And what they see is a significant improvement in their microbiome as based on the markers that the, these bio, microbiome companies put out, you know, biodiversity, you know, bacteroides, firmicutes ratios, and, and so on and so forth. So what I'm seeing with carnivores that have actually done their microbiomes are robust, healthy microbiomes with good diversity. Uh, and, and, and I don't, beyond that, is that good? Is it bad? I have no idea. I don't think anybody truly does yet. Uh, again, I'll go back to the healthy body, healthy person equals microbiome regardless of composition. Okay. Well, the last question I usually like to ask guests if there is time is, uh, what they think is, you know, popular mainstream advice that, you know, people might hear often that is just plain, you know, wrong or terrible or something along those lines. I think, uh, the, I mean, I think eliminating meat from the diet is completely wrong. I think the push to go plant-based is basically doubling down on a disastrous nutritional policy. The American diet, the standard American diet is something like 70 to 75% plant-based as it is. We eat an abysmally small amount of 
you know, for instance, beef, you know, on our diet, the average American eats 2.4 ounces of beef a day. That is a trivial amount of calories coming from beef. We eat more calories coming from soybean oil than we do beef in this country. You know, the rest of the, the rest of the, you know, animal products primarily are dairy, a little bit of eggs, a small amount of fish, uh, you know, and some chicken. But I mean, beef in particular, which has been vilified, is not in any way a significant part of the American diet. Going more plant-based, uh, you know, particularly with these processed plant foods, these fake meats, is just going to make the problem worse. Uh, it is not going to help the environment in any significant way. I mean, that argument is completely, completely wrong. I don't, we don't have time to go into that right now. But it, but if you look into the actual solutions that are being proposed with regard to plant-based diets and the environment, it is completely misguided. It's completely ignoring. Uh, you know, it's basically they're they're paying for the message through, you know, investing. You know, they're investing in one hundred and fifty dollar project, one hundred fifty billion dollar projected industry, and they're doing everything they can to get out this narrative. And people tend to, you know, gullible people tend to buy this. Meat is on the human menu. It is what made us humans. Uh, it is, you know, it is something we we've been eating for three million years, and to remove it from the diet will have disastrous consequences. We're already seeing it with so much. Uh, you know, disease, autoimmune diseases, mental health disorders. Uh, and I think that's due to an insufficient diet that excludes, you know, healthy, healthy parts of the human diet. Well, thanks a lot, man. I appreciate you coming on. I know you have a podcast and you have a website. So what, you know, what are you up to these days? What are you, where can people find you? Uh, yeah, the, the, the biggest thing I'd like people to look at is something called meetrx.com. So it's like meet with a prescription sign behind it, you know, meetrx.com. Um, I am there every single day, seven days a week at 9 a.m. Pacific, doing a little seminar with whoever shows up in our member community. We usually have anywhere between 40 to 100 people show up every single day. We have this wonderful, supportive community for people that want to transition and try out, you know, a carnivore-based diet. Um, and so I am very passionate about that. Um, we are, you know, trying to get a clinical trial off the ground. There's a study, Harvard University did an observational study, which I haven't finished writing up yet. That will be coming out later this year. Uh, the study that I'm trying to get going, we've got a huge, uh, you know, uh, crowdfunding, uh, you know, that's going on. So far, we're getting good response on that. And hopefully we'll be able to fund that trial that we're hoping to do. Um, social media wise, uh, I'm on Instagram. Uh, Sean, S-H-A-W-N, Baker, B-A-K-E-R, 1967. Uh, usually, uh, you know, I'm on there posting my craziness. Um, uh, you know, some of it, so some of it, I tend to, I tend to be the squeaky wheel that gets the, 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 the oil type of thing. I've used the, you know, the, I try to be the real subdued, here, just the facts, here's the studies, and that doesn't go very far. So I've got to do some more entertaining stuff, I guess I'll put it that way, uh, that drives traffic. I've got a YouTube channel, uh, Sean Baker. If you just type in Sean Baker Carver YouTube, you'll find my channel. Uh, and then I'm also on Twitter at sbakermd. Uh, and uh, that is my major, uh, uh, what do you call it? Major uh, yeah. social. I've got some smaller ones. Oh, we've, got, we've got a Facebook group called the World Carnivore Tribe. We've got about 50,000 members in that group that I started two years ago. I started a vegan recovery group. We've got a couple thousand ex-vegans in that one, Restoration <laughs> vegan recovery group, which is interesting to see the ex-vegans tell their stories. It's pretty, pretty enlightening. Yeah. Didn't, didn't you have a podcast? I could have swore you had a podcast. I did. I have, I have something called it. Well, right now everything's going to switch, switch over to meetrx.com where I do a podcast about, I don't know, three or four a week. Uh, we, I did do the HPO podcast, Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. I've since unfortunately gotten so busy with the other stuff. I had to discontinue that one, but uh, we've still got some great episodes on air. I'm sure Zach is going to, keep going with some other good stuff. So human performance outliers podcast, and then the meetrx.com podcast or the meetrx uh, YouTube channels where you can catch those podcasts. So we've got hundreds of, we've already got hundreds of uh, uh, videos uploaded, success stories, you know, just hundreds of success stories. Uh, I mean, we've, we've just got, we've, I mean, meetrx has got hundreds upon hundreds of success stories. We've got all kinds of research that supports what we do. We've got, you know, like I said, all kinds of where you can find regenerative farmers and ranchers, discounts on meat products, recipes, you know, you name it. We've got it. It's, it's like a, it's like the repository for everything you want, everything you could possibly want on a carnivore diet. So that's where you can go. I'll put all those uh, in the show notes, all the YouTube channels and stuff like that. Is there anything else you want to cover before we call it quits? 
You know, I tell you, man, I could, I could talk for two or three more hours on different topics if we wanted to. So I'll just, I'll just leave yeah. it at that. It's been wonderful. Yeah, you it. have a great flow, dude. You can just, I mean, sometimes I'll interview guests and it'll be like, you know, trying to pull things out of them the whole show and you can just, you can just flow, man. You, you've got this down. Yeah, I've done, I can't tell you how many, how many interviews I've done now. I've probably done 300 interviews. Wow. So. <laughs> All right. Well, Dr. Sean Baker, thanks so much for coming on. All right, Lucas. Thanks, man. Take care. So I found Dr. Sean Baker to be just a really down-to-earth, good guy. I, I enjoy talking to him. And even outside the interview, you know, in emails and stuff, he was so kind. Um, he seemed to be interested in sharing this podcast too, which was just kind of blew me away. Because let me, let me tell you something real quick about running a podcast. Other than your family and friends, nobody cares about your podcast. There are millions of podcasts out there. Nobody cares about you. And being interesting and engaging is like the bare minimum you have to reach to just get someone to listen, let alone subscribe. So when an interview guest offers to help you out and get you more eyeballs, you just you know you're dealing with a high-quality person who just kind of gets it. Anyway, it reminded me of this one time I was listening to a YouTube video uh, from Danny Roddy, who, you know, he's a big Pete guy, and he used to do a uh, carnivore diet. And so he was kind of talking negatively about it. And one thing he said was that uh, carnivore kind of makes people angry and emotional. Let me tell you, if Dr. Baker is how carnivore people are, I got to get me some carnivore friends. I mean, he was just awesome. He was awesome to interview and he was awesome to interact with. So uh, all the links that he mentioned are in the show notes. Uh, One thing I did want to mention before signing off about carnivore diets and just diets in general, uh, any diet you know, is going to achieve certain goals. And the more extreme that diet is, the more extreme those results and goals are going to be. Carnivore right now, it's probably one of the most extreme diets out there. I mean, it's just meat. So, you know, if you're planning on doing it, use some of Dr. Baker's resources at MeatRx just to make sure you're not, you know, making any big obvious mistakes, just so that you avoid the big potholes and expect extreme results. Uh, Please do head over to the website at quackspodcast.com where you can see all of our previous episodes. Uh, You can subscribe on iTunes or Android or Spotify or SoundCloud or, you know, whatever you want. Uh, You can also help us out too by shopping through our Amazon banner on the right-hand side of the homepage. So thanks for listening, everybody. Be well. Be well.